Hey friends, my name is Andrea Crisp and I want to welcome you to the Courage Cast. Whether you're joining us for the very first time or you've actually been a longtime faithful listener, we are so glad that you're here. We actually don't take it for granted that you tune in and we would love to connect with you. So if you haven't already followed us on Instagram, please do so and connect with us. And we'd love to hear from you. We're at the dot courage cast and also my personal account, which is at Miss Crispy. And we're actually now on Facebook as well. So you can find the courage cast over on Facebook if that's where you hang out. And can I ask one quick favor? If you've not already gone to iTunes to rate and review the podcast, would you please do so? We would really appreciate for you to actually leave us a comment. I read every one of them and repost them as well because it really helps to get the podcast out to more listeners. Today's episode is actually part one of a two-part series and next week we'll be releasing the second episode and I am chatting with my gorgeous new friend Sarah Ball who wrote an amazing book called Fearless in 21 Days, A Survivor's Guide to Overcoming Anxiety. Now, when we sat down to record this episode, we talked for so long that we actually had to divide it into two because there were so many great things that she said and tangible examples that you can apply to your life right now. Now, we go pretty deep in this conversation, but there is a lightheartedness about it. So I really think you're going to enjoy our conversation. You're listening to The Courage Cast, a show to equip and empower women to live bravely. Each week, we'll share coaching conversations and stories of women who are willing to face their fear and pursue their purpose. Here's your host, life coach, author, and your secret weapon. I absolutely adore my guest today, and I think you are going to too. She's an author, she's a speaker, she's a mom of five, and she is out there changing lives each and every day, helping people overcome anxiety and depression. Here's my friend, Sarah Ball. Sarah, thank you so much for being on the Courage Cast today. So, so thankful that you've decided to be on the show. And I love that, first of all, that we met and it wasn't even that long ago. And I feel like I just got to know you so quickly and I love everything you're doing. So thank you for being here. Uh Uh-huh. (laughs) <laughs> Thank you for having me. I know I I loved meeting you. It was definitely a um, inspirational connection, and I'm looking forward to where our relationship goes. So, me too. Me too. Mm-hmm. And for those of you who are listening, uh, Sarah and I actually just met a couple of months ago. Probably not even really that long ago. We were both at a writers retreat, and we had an Airbnb not very far from Toronto and Sarah had flown in from Lethbridge and spent five days and I was there for just three of those days but it was just an amazing time to connect with other writers and to you know to write and to spend time and you were seriously so encouraging during that time. That's good. I'm glad. I know what it's like. I think those retreats, I'm always like, okay, we need to work hard and we need to get stuff done and encourage one another because it's just as much about that connection as it is doing the work, right? So, oh, absolutely. Totally absolutely. And you've written one book already and you kind of are on your second one, correct? Yes, that's right. What's the name of your first one? So uh, the name of my first book is Fearless in 21 Days, A Survivor's Guide to Overcoming Anxiety. 
Uh, I love it. I love it. We're going to get into talking about your story and things that you are working on even right now. But just why don't you share with us just a little bit about yourself and maybe um, what you're passionate about? Sure. Um, Okay. So I live in a super small town in Southern Alberta. Yay. And uh, I'm a mom of five kids. So my oldest is 20 and there's a whole bunch in between. And then the youngest is eight. And And so I'm actually, uh, I'm a blogger and I'm a speaker and um, I help people overcome anxiety. That's kind of what I do from my own personal experience, but we'll get into that. And what am I passionate about? Well, first of all, I'm passionate about spas. I love spas. I'm passionate about red wine and I am passionate about seeing people set free. Mm. I can bond with you on all three of those (laughs) topics. (laughs) I was like, in fact, I'm 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 picturing a retreat right now where it's like all the spas all the red wine and a bunch of freedom. That sounds, oh my gosh, that sounds amazing. I was like, who doesn't need that? (laughs) No, everybody needs that. Um, That's amazing. What was the catalyst for your first book? Like what, what, how did it actually come to being? Um, well, that's a great question. I, well, I had been blogging for a while. I was actually a mummy blogger for a while when my kids were young. And I had a little bit of an audience and enjoyed it just for fun. And then I ended up experiencing um, quite a severe nervous breakdown. I hate that term, but it's the best one to describe what I experienced, uh, mental breakdown. And um, from that, I kind of started writing a little bit, but I wasn't really willing to share what I was actually going through. Um, During my recovery, which took over a year, I began to sort of speak about it a little bit and then I had a editor reach out to me and ask me if I'd be willing to share my story on overcoming anxiety and uh, I really didn't want to but I really felt that this was something I needed to do because my mental illness at the time was really affecting my writing and affecting my my future and all these things so it was very terrifying to write about something so vulnerable and thinking that I was alone and that was the only person in the world who struggled with it. Anyway, so as I kind of was coming out and healing, I wrote a 21-day series on my blog about the things that I'd been journeying through and the things that I discovered for recovery and healing. And out of that came my book, Fearless in 21 Days. So it actually came out of a blog post series. Wow. Mm -hmm. So literally just something that you had started to kind of be therapy for yourself Mm -hmm. was the catalyst for something you shared yeah with the world I think what um offers people a lot of hope and help is when they know that you've actually walked through it and sometimes you're given these opportunities to share your experiences and how you've overcame when it's so close to you you could like just reach behind you and touch it Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know because sometimes years and years down the road you look back and you can say oh yeah I recovered from this but there's just something really precious and real about when you're just coming out of it and you're reaching behind you telling the next person okay this is the next step of healing so it was kind of I healed with my audience if that makes sense Mm -hmm. yeah I've heard before a lot of people you know just talking about the concept of when you're helping other people you don't want to be that far ahead in the journey and you want to be uh, able to be healed in some form but you don't want to be so far ahead that people can't relate to where you are now exactly Yeah, exactly. So 
Can you take me back um, maybe to that time in your life and just kind of describe, I think a lot of times we, we talk about anxiety, we talk about depression, but then we don't mm-hmm. actually say, okay, what, what actually happened? Like, how did this manifest in your life? What sure. happened to you to um, have you, have this breakdown, as you say? Mm-hmm. Well, I'll tell you a bit about myself before. I was never someone who struggled with anxiety or depression. Um, I had been a single mom, had gone through a lot of hardship. And at this point in my life, I was married and I'd had my fifth kid. I'd graduated from university. It was like all of the boxes were being ticked off and my life Mm. was kind of going well. And I was always a, you know, person that people relied on. I could handle a lot, do a lot for other people. People came to me for all their problems. And I was the person that people used to quote, you know, what would Sarah do? Or, you know, Sarah would know what to do in this situation because I was always the person to rise up and be like, I got this. And so I actually used to be a little bit hard (laughs) and judgmental for people who struggled with worry and anxiety and depression. It was like, oh my gosh, just snap out of it, get over it, move on. I was very much driven and moving forward. So I just wanted to describe my personality before that Mm -hmm. um, because a lot of us have those kind of judgments and we really don't have a lot of compassion and understanding for people who go through mental illness so so that was me and then I had my um, fifth child and so I know that hormones probably played a big part of that as well Um, he was probably just a few months old but it's not like it happens overnight it's like a slow derailment. So for me, it started off with burnout. I just started feeling really tired all the time. Um, it was hard for me to get up. It was hard for me to want to do things. The things I used to be passionate about that really filled me up, I wasn't really interested in anymore. So that's kind of where it started showing up. Um, at the time, I was very driven to lose weight, to write the best blog post in the world. Like I was just had no boundaries or self-care whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And uh, my hair started falling out. So for me, mental illness began to manifest itself physically first, um, but never paid any mind to it. Like whatever, just keep going, just keep pushing through. And then I went through a series of some crisis. Um, My mom had had um, a scary stroke and um, a few other people really close to me had passed away. And it just kind of felt like all of a sudden the rug was being pulled out and I lost this mental stability. Like, oh no, am I next? Like there's so much death and crisis going on around me. And one day I woke up and hit the treadmill early and uh, started running on the treadmill and I could not get my heart to slow down. And I thought, well, I'll just get off. I'll be fine. And it kept beating faster and faster. And all of a sudden I was having chest pains and I couldn't catch my breath. And I thought, oh my gosh, I'm having a heart attack. And so I walked around my house and I say in in the first chapter of my book, looking for the best place to die. (laughs) So people find me if I died. Um, so I decided to lay down on my couch in the front living room. I unlocked the door before I did that. And I called 911 and, uh, the paramedics came and they were really handsome by the way, which makes it really awkward when you're having a panic attack mm. <laughs> <laughs> and the paramedics are super cute, but anyway, so they don't try this at home. People <laughs> don't try this at home. There's no guarantee. Who's going to yeah. And, uh, so they checked me over and they were like, have you been under a lot of stress lately? I'm like, yes. And, and they're like, we really don't feel that there's anything wrong with you. This is a panic attack. And I'm like, what? Like, this was so real. Like, I'm not one to be hysterical about life. Like, that's just not me. And so it really caught me off guard. Um, I'd had a panic attack a few years prior to that. So I knew what it was. I'd, um, had, gone through a really difficult time and had experienced one then. Um, but 
I thought that if I just went to bed and got some rest, that when I woke up in the morning, I'd be fine. And I wasn't. And so what turned into one panic attack that day escalated um, into sometimes three days, sometimes eight a day to the point where I couldn't um, eat. I couldn't get out of bed. I couldn't have dinner with my children. I had to have my friends drive my kids to school. My husband had to do all the cooking and the cleaning. I was completely debilitated. And um, it escalated from there. I started experiencing severe depression. And then um, that depression and anxiety eventually led into some serious um, obsessive compulsive disorder where I started developing symptoms of harm OCD, which we can talk about later. And so basically I went from suck it up princess to fearing for my life. Hmm. And it lasted for several, several months. So that's basically my story. (laughs) You know, it's as you're saying it, it's one of the things that just really stands out to me, first of all, is Mm -hmm. the difference, I think, between everyone's story. Mm -hmm. Like that to me is, I think, the biggest thing, because everyone's story of what mental health looks like for Mm -hmm. them. Mm-hmm. is so different. Absolutely. And I think sometimes when people are struggling, they're like, well, I'm not having this, so mm-hmm. I must not be. Or, you know, it's like uh, this weird comparison game, even mm-hmm. with mental health. Yeah. And and my story is not like that at all. Mm-hmm. Like, and, and so it's interesting to me because, you know, sometimes we think, okay, well, at what point is you know, are we unraveling? Are we breaking down here? Like what's happening that causes this? Mm -hmm. Like what, what do you think for you caused this? Like what was the um, major thing that kind of pushed it over the edge? Well, I would say a few things. So I really believe that there's a body, mind, soul connection. And so when we neglect our physical health, um, it affects our mental health. When we affect our mental health, it affects our physical health. When we neglect our spiritual health, it affects all of it. So I really believe that for me, it was kind of a combination of all three because it took all three in order for me to recover, to focus on all three. But I also feel that um, my personality of suck it up, princess and go forward and achieve and try to be perfect and all that stuff was covering up years and years of trauma and rejection and um, a lot of pain and things that I had just shoved down. And we think that when we shove down... (laughs) that it goes away. Um, However we do that, whether it's through works, whether that's through perfectionism, through control, through addiction, whatever that looks like, however you shove your feelings down, it comes out eventually. And so for me at a time in my life where I was, you know, drained physically, um, drained mentally and emotionally and spiritually, um, it had nowhere else to go. Mm -hmm. So I would, I would, that's how I would describe it for myself. So at what point, so you have this moment, the ambulance comes Mm -hmm. and now you're in a place where you are kind of on, you start this journey, this new Mm -hmm. journey. Mm -hmm. How, and you you know, you're, you know, there's a, probably a huge span between when this happened Mm -hmm. and when you started writing about it. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Yeah. Can you, can you walk me through that? Like what happened to get you okay uh, let's just I want to jump way ahead I never do this yeah that's fine but I want to jump way ahead because I'm very curious about this yeah are you healed now 
Oh, yes. I mean, I, so let's describe it this way. People say, are you healed? Does that mean you never have a sad day or feel nervous or anxious about something? Okay. So the reality is I'm not a walking superhuman, right? Um, but I'm absolutely 100% healed. Um, I have not had a panic attack in, oh, how long has it been? Six years. Um, I have become so attuned to my mental health. It's become such a high priority for me, even after all of these years. Um, it's something I take very seriously, even if people judge me for my my strict boundaries for myself and um, my need for rest and refueling. And um, so, yes, absolutely. You know, it, it's something that um, I have a hard time. I don't I don't forget it. Because, you know, I'm in the midst of launching my book and talk about a lot. I work with a lot of people through my online course. I'm dealing with people who are in the thick of it. So it's constantly reminding me of that place. But it's been so long since since I felt that, that, you know, it's hard to remember sometimes. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. no, I, I love that because it's this hope, right? Yeah. That anyone who's listening, you know, may be struggling or suffering right now with, with something, but there is hope that you can get to a different place. Yeah, absolutely. And I think for me, like when I was in my recovery, um, especially as a Christian, I found it really, really impossible. In fact, I didn't find any resources to help me. Mm -hmm. So it was either all spiritual or it neglected that side. And so for me, it was, I had to pull pieces from everywhere in order to heal and recover. And so I really made a promise to myself that, you know, I would be that person that would be willing to share. And I know that I'm not the first one. I deal with hundreds and hundreds of of men and women who are battling this, but no one was ever willing to sort of speak up about it and to share in in terrifying detail of the experience of of a mental breakdown and um, a mental illness. And um, so I wanted to be that spokesperson but it was not easy Mm -hmm. did you ever imagine that that would be the thing you would talk about after being a mommy blogger never no because I was you know humor and all about you know crafts and you know ups and downs of teenagers and toddlers and all this stuff not once had I ever but um you know I did have an experience um right before my (laughs) breakdown where I was actually at a conference and this lady who I really well respect came up and she prayed for me and she says, I just have such a strong feeling that you're going to have a a ministry for people who are struggling with anxiety, depression, and OCD. And I was like, okay. (laughs) And so my first thought was, oh, I can totally do that. I can totally tell people how to suck it up. I can totally tell people how to just push it down and keep moving and be optimistic and enjoy your life and all this stuff. And it was about six months later that I had my breakdown. Hmm. And so the fact that she had said, spoke that over me at the beginning um, really gave me an anchor that there's a purpose in this, Mm -hmm. even though that made me angry a lot of the times, Mm -hmm. but it was true. There was a purpose in it. So now it's interesting that you said, you know, you might have at one point said to people, okay, suck it up, like get over it, mm-hmm. be positive, say all the affirmations, do all the things, mm-hmm. you know, and one, two, three, bam, you're, you're good. Right. Yeah. yeah. And that obviously was not the path that you had to go down. And no. it's interesting to me because that would have been how you approached it before, but how do you approach it now? 
Well, it's a good question because I really feel that when somebody is going through mental illness, there is absolutely evidence in the brain of, it's like a brain injury. I don't know how to describe it. Um, so I really, really um, clung on to the idea that you can rewire your brain by focusing on what's good and focusing on positive things and speaking affirmations. So, so all those things I definitely don't neglect because that was a huge, huge part of my healing. But another part of it had to do with, you got to face it you got to face the, the pain and the grief and the things that you've been shoving down for years. And so there definitely is, um, you know, a place for affirming thoughts. But first of all, you need to remove a lot of things first before there's even room for that, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. Can you give me an example of like, what do you need to remove? Um, well, a lot of it has to do with trauma, dealing with past trauma from childhood or teenagehood or whatever. I think that's huge. Um, trauma really shows up um, in various places in your life. And it can be something that happened 20 years ago and all of a sudden it's surfacing. So just being open to be willing to heal past trauma is huge. I think really um, reprioritizing your health and taking care of yourself is a big part of it. A lot of people struggle with depression and anxiety. One of the first things I say is, are you going for walks every day? Are you exercising? And a lot of the time, the personality that really gets struck down by anxiety are really high driven, motivated, goal oriented people. And so the idea of rest is really difficult for them to just stop and do nothing. And that's a huge, huge thing that, that we need to be able to do. So really it's sort of emptying your heart and your mind with things that have been weighing you down and really working hard to sort of deal with that. Um, um, creating rest, because I think rest facilitates that. It facilitates, and a lot of people don't want to rest because then they have to deal with their thoughts and their feelings, right? Mm -hmm. So they just keep going. It's a, a way to avoid it. And, and then um, beginning to replace those negative thoughts with thoughts of hope and, and uh, you know, being that how would you say it? You have to become so many times when you're going through that, you're searching for counselors and friends and people to heal it. But at the end of the day, it's you that has to be your, your best friend. It's you that has to speak words of affirmation when you tell yourself that your life is hopeless and that there's nothing good about you and you're just a failure. It's you that has to come in and intercept that and say, that's not true. I have a purpose. I have a plan. I'm gifted. I'm, you know, so I think at the end of the day, you really have to strengthen yourself and focus on that so that you can be um, the spokesperson for your life, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah, no, for sure. You know, I was thinking as you're talking about that, um, I think oftentimes when we're dealing with something with crisis and it comes to that point where, oh my gosh, you know, there is something happening in my life and I do need to deal with it, whether it is anxiety or depression or there's something else happening. I think the mm -hmm. biggest thing is, is we have this fear that um, everything in our life has to change. And mm -hmm. here's the crazy part. Everything in our life does have to change. Yeah. And, and I think it's almost like this, you know, wake up call to you've been living in a way that mm -hmm. is actually not serving you. Yeah. And, and so we're fearful of like having to not only deal with the issue and deal with what's happening in our bodies, in our minds, in our spirit, but we're also mm -hmm. thinking I'm going to have to literally reorient my life. 
mm-hmm. from you know yep. from the word go. So it's like, what do I what do I say yes to, and how much uh-huh. exercise am I getting, and what food am I eating, and how many uh-huh. activities am I in, or am I, is my family or my kids in? Did that yeah. all have to change for you? Absolutely, but but in my, taking in mind the fact that when you were that mentally ill, especially in the beginning, mm-hmm. you have no ability for self care. Okay, like you, you don't have. It, it's really one of the posts that I wrote once in my blog was how to want to overcome depression. Okay, yeah, <laughs> fair <laughs> enough. Oftentimes, you're so depressed that the idea of trying to work at not being depressed is depressing. Yeah. <laughs> if that makes sense exactly and so that that's a that's a big part and that's definitely when you need support and and a community coming in and really surrounding you um the two most powerful ways um more effective than medication is um community and exercise and it's really hard because when you're struggling with mental illness you tend to be on the couch and in bed and you tend to isolate yourself from people so that's really really difficult so i would definitely say that you know when when you're hit with it as hard as i was or something you've struggled with your whole life those are the first two things I believe that need to come into alignment. And I think it's overwhelming to say, okay, I need to do this and this and this and this and this, because at the time you just can't. And so if it starts with, okay, I'm going to go for a walk around my block. Now for me, I couldn't leave my house. Mm -hmm. And so I remember six months into it, um, I went to the pharmacy to pick up something by myself for the first time. And that was a huge celebration point for me because I couldn't leave my house at that time and uh, I had to have a friend come and help me walk around the block I made it down my stairs to the end of my driveway and that was as far as I could go that day so I feel like it's wherever you're at and that's extreme right Mm -hmm. so not everybody are dealing with it that extreme there's some people who've just kind of created a very safe life for themselves in order to accommodate their anxiety everybody in their family accommodates it um, you know, they have certain, they've made their life small. That's how I, I like to word it. Mm-hmm. They've made their lives very small in order to accommodate their anxiety and depression. And so I feel like it's just taking inventory of, okay, where are you at? Where do you want to be at? And taking small steps mm-hmm. and paying in mind that community and exercise are one of the first most important steps to take. As Sarah was chatting, I had this major aha moment about my own life She mentioned how we can tend to make our lives small to accommodate our illness. And it's honestly something that I never really thought about before, but it's so true for my own life, how I had actually accommodated my illness by making my life small and keeping myself safe. And maybe you had that same aha moment too. And I never really stopped to think about the fact that it was actually preventing me from recovering. Do you feel stuck in your life where you see people around you doing really amazing things and you wonder why it is that your life is not moving forward? You can't seem to get the traction you need to actually make the changes you want to make in your life. Can I encourage you to go ahead and schedule a free 30-minute strategy session with me where we'll uncover what is holding you back talk about some limiting beliefs that maybe you've been believing about your life. So to schedule your free 30-minute strategy session with me, go to my website at andreacrisp.ca forward slash schedule. 
As we continue to chat, Sarah actually shares with me her struggle with Harm OCD. Now, it's very informative and there are a lot of things that I did not know. However, if you've ever struggled with thoughts of self-harm in any way, please pause this podcast and reach out for help to a trusted friend or a mental health professional. We're also going to be talking about religious OCD and how the church is handling mental health. Do you think when people are making their lives small, yeah, are they staying in that space in, in anxiety? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's really funny. Um, one of the stages, because I work with a lot of people, uh, I've run an online course called The Fearless Traveler. And um, pe- it's a 12-week course and people go through it. And then I'm working with them like on Facebook, we're connected and they post and it's a great community for them. And uh, one of the anxieties that come up towards the end of their healing when they're starting to get their feet back again is I'm really anxious about not feeling anxious anymore. (laughs) And I really, I remember that because it becomes so familiar to you, your habits, your, your daily plans, your social life, everything is surrounded by how is this going to make me feel? Um, What if my anxiety shows up? What if I can't handle it? What if I have a panic attack in public, like everything. And so eventually people begin to avoid life to avoid fear to avoid feeling fear and they make their lives small and people around them um, have to accommodate that as well. Oh no, we can't let mom do that. That makes her anxious or we need to do this. And, and all of a sudden there's these habits and plans and, and things in place in order to accommodate this anxiety. So it becomes the driving factor because what was somebody struggling with anxiety, severe anxiety, the biggest driving fear that they have doesn't matter if they have phobias or OCD or whatever is feeling anxious. They avoid feeling the feeling of fear more than anything else. Hmm. Like that is the feeling that they're trying to avoid above all things. Right. And that's exhausting. Right. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that I really encourage people to do that was pivotal for me was learning how to not fear fear and to learn to accept it and embrace it. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, okay, I'm going to go to my kid's school concert, which I couldn't do in the beginning. And I'm taking anxiety with me. It's welcome to come. If it shows up, it shows up instead of, I don't think I can go. And what if my anxiety shows up or you sit in the back or you, you, you plan your escape route. It's, it's learning to just accept it and allow it to be there. And then when you begin to do that, I used, actually used to give it a name. I used to call it anxious Annie. Mm-hmm. And I'd be like, oh, hi, anxious Annie. I'm so glad you showed up today. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. I knew that the fear was just there to protect me. It's like a yappy dog, right? He just freaks out over everything, trying to guard the house from leaves blowing and cars driving by, right? Yeah. It's just kind of going off the handle anytime. And so for me, it really had to do with accepting the sensations, the thoughts, everything. And, and so for me, it was learning to actually love and embrace the anxiety that I was feeling. And when I began to do that, I stopped fearing it so much and then eventually began to dissolve. Hmm. So with the acceptance of it, mm-hmm. well, the acceptance of, of it in the sense of like, okay, I understand it, it can come back. Then you actually stripped it of its power. Exactly. Exactly. It's like the bully, right? I talk Mm -hmm. about that in my book. It's like the bully relationship. You run, it bullies you, you run. (laughs) Bully, run, bully, run, bully, run. 
but the minute you don't, you stop running and you're like, all right, take, do me in. <laughs> right? yeah. Then it's like, oh, well, that, this isn't fun anymore. <laughs> and the bully stops. So it really has a lot, lot to do with that. And is that how that happened with you? Yeah. Where you, so you kind of went through that process of, you know, so, doing some of those things and then eventually the anxiety lessened. Yeah. So when that. you're dealing with panic attacks, it's an actual physiological thing that's happening in your body. So it would be like, you know, all of a sudden you, you walk down the alley and you're encountered by a bear. Your body is going to go into fight or flight mode, right? So your mm -hmm. body's designed to respond and it's there to protect you. And so people who struggle with panic attacks, I mean, your body's just kicking in, it's doing its thing. I mean, there's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing wrong with you because your body's responding that way. Um, it's just the fact that it's doing it all the time in non-dangerous situations, right? And so for anxiety, it really, um, when you're having panic attacks, they last 20 minutes. Like you can literally clock them every single time because it's a surge that your body goes through. But the symptoms are so intense. And they're so incredibly real. It's not in your head. Mm -hmm. You're not just having a hysterical moment and you can't get your emotions under control. Your body is physically going through a surge of adrenaline and your throat feels tight. You're, you feel like you're having a heart attack. You can't breathe and all of these kind of symptoms. So they're terrifying. So it's like that moment where you slam on your brakes and you feel like you, you could have just died, like you just avoided a car crash. I mean, you're instantly hit with, with a near-death experience three to five, six times a day. Like how exhausting is that? No wonder it leads to depression, right? Right. And, and so for me, the symptoms are so terrifying, but to have to sit in them and be like, okay, my throat's closing in right now. Okay, my chest is feels like an elephant is sitting on it. These are all the symptoms of a heart attack, but it's just anxiety. Learning to sit in it and accept it and close my eyes and allow the 20 minutes of severe agony and the panic in my brain saying you're going to die to just go through me. And that is so incredibly hard, but absolutely freeing. And it's one of the only successful ways I've seen people overcome anxiety very quickly. So I struggled with panic attacks for months and months and months. And I learned this technique um, from an old German lady who wrote a book many, many years ago. Um, and she talked about this. And so I'm like, okay, I'm going to try it. And I did it for a week. And my six months of panic attacks were gone overnight. Really? Gone. And so I still had general anxiety. Like yeah. I still had, I still had to deal with generalized anxiety. But as far as the panic attacks, they're very easy to overcome once you know how to do it. So anyone listening who's struggling with severe panic attacks, you know, just be encouraged that this is something that that can be easily overcome. And mm -hmm. it takes a lot of courage to do it. So okay, so how, how do they do it? <laughs> like, I was like, we get, you know, like I said, it has to do with um, so like I said before, our basic instinct as a human, when we experience fear, mm -hmm. fight it, right? Or to run away. And so, for example, if somebody's having a panic attack coming on, oftentimes they'll run away, right? So they'll hide in their bedroom, they'll pray it away, they'll sit on their bed, they, you know, um, try and avoid it, distract themselves, avoid situations that will give them panic attacks. So they stop driving, they stop going in public, they stop doing things to run away from panic attacks. Okay, which only, like we talked about, escalates the fear because you're like, oh, panic attacks are scary. Run away, run away, avoid them at all costs. And then the other thing that we do is, was that 
run. Did I say run? <laughs> it's fight, right? And so they say, just breathe and take some deep breaths and close your eyes and imagine you're on a beach. And like, that is just a bunch of nonsense. Like, it's really good when you're going through general anxiety for meditation and, and settling your brain and deep breathing. That's all great, but not for panic attacks. And so really, it's you feel one coming on, and this is really difficult to do in the beginning. And so you, you might be able to have success for the first two seconds of a panic attack and then fall into it, but the next day you can handle it for a minute, and then the next day, 10 minutes, whatever, right? And so for me, it was saying this is a panic attack. And sitting down and actually willing it to get worse. Huh. So if my throat was tightening, I'd say, okay, get tighter. If my chest, if I couldn't breathe, I'd be like, okay. And I would focus, hyper-focus on the symptoms, willing them to get worse. Because what happens is when we're in a panic attack, we're willing it to go away. Go away, go away. You know, like we're just wanting it to go away. But mm -hmm. to stop and allow it to go through your body as in intensely is incredibly um, powerful in breaking the cycle of panic attacks. Wow. Okay. I have never heard that before. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So you had mentioned a little earlier mm -hmm. the, the harm OCD. Mm -hmm. And how did that come into play in your life? Well, this is something that's still hard to talk about. Um, I, I don't talk about this a lot, but I will with you. Just because I really have to guard, um, I call them my people, the people yeah. I'm in here to. Um, but I had had tried antidepressants, which I do believe in. So I just mm -hmm. want to precursor that. And I, I believe that the minute that you're struggling with severe mental illness, you need to be seeing a doctor, you need to be seeing a counselor, you need to be having support. Like I totally believe in it. And I believe that medication is life-saving for some people. And I believe that you cannot do the deeper work that we talked about earlier um, without having, like, you have to stop drowning. Mm -hmm. And sometimes medication can help you from stopping to drown so you can deal with the deeper stuff and swim to shore, if that makes sense, kind of my analogy. But for me, when I tried medication, I had a severe reverse reaction to it. And it's, it hasn't been, you know, so I believe that the harm OCD started as a reaction to that. Okay. Um, and so what I started noticing was, first of all, having anxiety about having medication. So I had like Ativan and some other medications to help me through panic attacks and, and different things and the antidepressants that have been prescribed. And I started hiding them because I was anxious I was going to wake up in the middle of the night and just commit suicide <laughs> or okay. take them all. Yeah. And so I would find myself put them in, up in my cupboard and then I couldn't sleep knowing that they were there. And what if I went off the deep end? So then I would take them and I would, cause we had a locked one from our kids. So it was like in a toolbox that we had a key. And so I would go and I'd climb up in the chair and I'd lock it away from me. But then it was like, I still had the key. And then if there was like a bottle of bleach in the laundry, I would, I would take it and I would, you know, store it and hide it from myself. Um, I couldn't cut, I couldn't use knives to cook dinner. I would often cry, like watching my husband do it. I'd have to leave the room. Um, if there were ropes or belts or anything laying around that I could hurt myself with, um, caused me severe, severe anxiety. And um, it really had to do with a fear of hurting myself and other people. This is something, you know, we talk about OCD and people think, oh, you're just a perfectionist and you like, you, it makes you anxious when pictures are crooked. But that is just such um, a false 
representation of people who struggle with OCD. Mm-hmm. So for them, they think the compulsions like excessive hand washing, we've heard that many times. But to be honest, harm OCD is actually one of the most um, prevalent forms of harm of OCD. Wow, okay. And so there's people who have religious OCD, there's there's many different forms um, of OCD. So it's basically sort of a theme, a fear, and you have these obsessive intrusive thoughts over and over and over and over again that you can't stop. Mm-hmm. Um, almost fantasies, almost like that just cause you so much anxiety that you create rituals and habits to ease the thought. Hmm. So people aren't compulsively washing their hands because they're just like, I got to be clean. It's because they had a thought earlier. I accidentally touched this post and uncle Joe was here. What if there's a germ on it and all of a sudden then I'm going to die. And then it just escalates and they cannot stop thinking about it. So they wash their hands and they still don't feel better. So they do it twice. They don't feel better. So they do it three, four times. And finally, after eight times, they're like, okay, I feel better. Eight times is, is how many times I have to wash my hands for it to go away. Mm-hmm. And they create a pattern, right? Mm-hmm. So for me, with harm OCD, which is the majority of people I minister to experience either religious or harm OCD, mm-hmm. um, yeah, th- it's very scary. And you and I had a, a little chat about religious OCD, but I'm sure mm-hmm. right now people are listening and they're like, what the heck is religious yeah. OCD you know yeah. like we threw out a we basically threw out a grenade I know and people. then people are like what <laughs> there is such a thing as religious <laughs> okay oh, so well you have to tell them what it is <laughs> well first of all religious OCD is not just it's not just religious people who struggle with it mm-hmm. people who you know don't have a religion can struggle with religious OCD but it's it's basically a fear of um of God smiting you or not going to heaven or a fear of doing something wrong or breaking a rule. Um, And it's such an intense fear that you feel like you do it accidentally. So it can be really like um, strong, um, a need to pray over and over again or pray the same prayer over and over again until you feel like you've been forgiven or you feel like you've been, you know, accepted back into heaven. Um, and so I don't know if I can share one extreme story of one. So, for example, there was a young boy um, who had heard about who had religious OCD so bad that he had to be hospitalized. Um, all the muscles in the back of his neck had sh- had shortened and and seized up he was in excruciating pain because he was so afraid that if he lowered his head he'd be bowing down to anybody but god really and so he kept his head looking up at the ceiling because he felt like if he lowered his head he would lose his salvation and go to hell and and so to recognize that um the severe mental illness behind that is really sad Mm -hmm. um and so that's a very extreme form but it can be quite extreme. So I don't know if that makes sense to you, but wow, really that's yeah. kind of the theme behind it. So I, I hear a lot of that from from Christians who are especially trying to get help, especially when you're encouraging them to accept the fear, you know, to do all these things. Um, you know, if it's, it's, it's really hard for them to find that peace. And a lot of the work I do is actually undoing a lot of bad theology mm-hmm. about how, what God thinks of mental illness. And a lot of them feel a lot of shame for the fact that they feel this way. So especially for those who are struggling with religious OCD, it can be really, really hard to watch. And, you know, I know that you're just developing right now another course Mm -hmm. about um, the church and mental health. Mm -hmm. 
Um, but I want to know what your thoughts are because I know growing up myself, my mm-hmm. mom um, was diagnosed with clinical depression and we kept it very quiet mm-hmm. for a long time because way back then, like in the 80s and 90s, it was not something that the stigma was so strong, like yeah. something is wrong with you. Yeah. You know, whereas now it's like everybody's got it. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean that in a like, you know, and I'm not flippantly saying that, but yeah. but so now you hear about it so much. Yeah. Um, And and, you know, we didn't we talked about it in the church, but we didn't talk about it in the church because, you know, there is this kind mm-hmm. of thing in the church where it's like, OK, you just pray and God will heal mm-hmm. it. And then, mm-hmm. you know, what are your thoughts about the church and mental health? Well, I feel like there's definitely been some progression. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, and the thing is to say the church is is really, um, it, there's so many different denominations and theologies, and I think there's some that are worse than others <laughs> when it okay. comes to this kind of thing, just based mm-hmm. on their theology and stuff. Um, I feel like a lot of charismatics can be a little bit more like, you know, you just need more, you know, <laughs> just need more prayer or you just, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And so, and I think there's been just an overall arrogance in, in the church and the theology that's come out over the years that have been so incredibly damaging. And basically that, you know, if you feel anxiety, you feel depressed, you're not spiritual enough, you're not, you're not strong enough, you're not praying enough, whatever. And I want to tell you that when I went through my breakdown, I prayed every day. I journaled every day. I went to church every Sunday. I volunteered. I love God. Like I love time and worship. Like I did all the things, all the things. I had a very personal relationship with God. And I knew that my mental illness, there were some things that he needed to show me about him and his character, but there, but it was definitely not a contributor. And so many people that I minister to are so passionate. They have a very full faith, if I can say it that way. Mm -hmm. Um, And so anyway, there's just been this sort of message that there is no room for weakness in the church, that it's almost like a Tony Robbins conference of you can succeed and you can have millions and you can whatever. But I believe, um, you know, that was never Jesus's intent and that he came to heal the broken. And and so whenever I, I look at it now, I see um, more and more people willing to speak up, but the church scrambling to figure out how to do it. And so I think sometimes that there, when people have reached out and they've, they've received that typical message of, well, you just need to pray more, or you just need to cast it off, or you just need to do this, right? And they give them a to-do list. There really is a misunderstanding about what mental illness is. Mm -hmm. And so I, I feel like the church is definitely more like they're getting there but there hasn't been much set in place to really help those who are struggling with mental illness. Okay. That makes sense. And so I think that we're, we're getting there, but the conversation start needs to start happening more and more. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't feel like people are struggling with it more and more. I think that they're speaking up about it more and more. You know, I actually did a podcast. I won't say who it was a radio interview actually. And, uh, it was awful because <laughs> the guy was like, what is it with you millennials? Why are you so you know, sensitive? Like, I was like, excuse me? Well, first of all, I'm not a millennial, but thank you. <laughs> but yeah. my oldest daughter is, so appreciate the compliment. Yeah. And second of all, I'm like, in the past, people dealt with it through substance abuse or physical abuse 
or martyrdom or denial, or they just live their life simple and small. It's like people are actually willing to to fight it now and want to overcome it and be free from anxiety and depression. And so I don't necessarily feel like it's a new thing. I think it's just been hidden and people are actually willing to, to speak up about it. So the church needs to be prepared for that. Mm-hmm. No, I think you're right about that. Like in, in that I've never really thought about it in that context, but mm-hmm. for probably a many, many decades, people were struggling with it, but were doing other things to mask it. Yeah. And with, you know, the internet and mm-hmm. social media and mm-hmm. the ability to see so many people's lives, yeah. I think that's made it all the more prevalent and we can see it yeah. more and we hear about it more. But I think you're right. People did struggle with it prior to. It just yeah. wasn't as widely known or talked about. Yeah. You know, here's an interesting thing that you said. And, and it's like, I feel like, I don't know if it's a generational thing or if it's, you know, where we are now, but you said some people, you know, are wanting that freedom and mm-hmm. some people aren't mm-hmm. wanting the freedom. Mm-hmm. What do you think is the kind of determining factor between a person who's going to be like, okay, I'm ready. I want it versus, I, just, I know yeah. that's a really, really loaded question. Yeah. Um, no. And I totally, I totally get that. And, um, and I've seen the, t- the difference between the two. Okay. Um, for sure. Especially within my course, mm-hmm. most of the people who are willing to pay and do the work to do it are the ones who are like, I want to be free. Okay. <laughs> and, and so I definitely, and then the ones are like, can I do this for free? Or like, why does it have to be this long? And can I just tell me what to do? <laughs> like whatever they're not ready. Right. And so you definitely see the difference between, between the two for sure. But I think it has to do with a lot of people don't know what it looks like. Mm, freedom. Yeah. Okay. So it's like, some people know what it looks like and they've experienced it before and they want their old selves back or they want, you know, to have a different life for themselves and other people, anxiety and depression has been familiar to them their entire life. They don't know what it looks like. And so, and, and sometimes for people it's, you know, it's an actual um, chemical imbalance in their brain, right? It's like having a limp. It's, it's like having, you know, a, a chronic illness. Right. And, and so to just like, if something they've struggled with since a child, they don't know what it looks like. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like in order to sort of help bridge the gap, it's, it's creating not false hope, but hope that your life can be bigger and that there are ways to function and succeed and enjoy your life to the fullest. Even if this, even if this is something that you have to walk, walk in. And, and so I think it's just um, sort of reigniting the idea that this is what it looks like. And so I think that's really what, what deters people a lot of times. And then they don't have the tools. I mean, there's so many people who've grown up without any tools to be able to self-help or analyze themselves or, or think in a certain way. And, and so really they don't even know where to start and they're overwhelmed. And then the other one would be fear, I think. <laughs> Go figure, hey? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> fear of the unknown or fear like, oh, well, what if I do? And then I just end up back here or I tried that once before and it didn't work or, you know, just things like that. It, 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 I think those are probably a few obstacles that I see come up a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's interesting when I was, when I first acknowledged that I was depressed and I, I have talked about this on the podcast before, yeah. but um, when I acknowledged it, it was still something that I hadn't really told my family 
particularly. Mm -hmm. And it was a slow, um, it was slowly, I was slowly telling friends basically Mm -hmm. is how it worked, but I was doing the work on my own Mm -hmm. and I was determined to not stay where I was Mm -hmm. and I had no idea how to get out of it, Mm -hmm. but I was putting into place like um, all these things and trying to figure out like, okay, well, how do I do this myself? And how do I, you know, so I developed these morning routines and Mm. then, you know, these affirmations and then, you know, asking God, you know, what's, what's the, like, what's happening here? And can you speak to me about this? And it became a very spiritual practice. It also became a very mindful practice. Like Mm -hmm. I, I, and in those moments, the, all the stigma I had had around meditation and yoga went out the window because Mm. I was like, I will do whatever. (laughs) I don't care if like, if I gotta like, you know, swing from a mountain, like, you know, literally I will try whatever. And all of a sudden I started to, you know, to be open to, you know, different forms or methods of healing. And I believed that, you know, God could heal me in any of those ways. Like, and, and relief was healing to me. And also, and you know what, I've not been able to put into words until just today, as you said it, Mm -hmm. but like, you're right. I had created a small world. Mm hmm. And I didn't realize I'd created this small little world and I wanted something different. I wasn't sure how to do it. Yeah. So it was like taking a step out of that world every single day. Yeah. And trying to, you know, enlarge its borders. Yeah. And um, and so like hearing what you're doing and how you're helping people and the journey you've been on, because I didn't have or know about that. Mm-hmm. Like it was all something, you know, is I think it's just like, honestly, just gives me so much joy to think about the fact that people can have access to this. Yeah. So it's got to help. Mm-hmm. How, how yeah. can they, how can they get access to this kind of help? <laughs> Sarah, <laughs> help them. <laughs> yeah. Help me help them. Well, I think, like I said, most important thing is community. And so I feel like um, I've created that community on my Facebook page is a really good place to really connect with other people. Mm -hmm. Um, But I do have my book, Fearless in 21 Days, uh, Survivor's Guide to Overcoming Anxiety. And it's available anywhere books are sold. So it depends what your favorite bookstore is, but Amazon, Indigo, Walmart, Target. And it's also available on ebook and audiobook as well, whatever you prefer. And then I have uh, my signature course, The Fearless Traveler, a guided tour out of anxiety. And you can find that on my blog, sarahebal.com. It's been an amazing course for people. I've had hundreds of people go through the course and um, the we have a private Facebook group and the community there is incredible. The support, the network they have with other people who are going through it. It's been really, really good for um, people. So I really encourage you to do that if this is something you're struggling with. And then my website, sarahebal.com has a lot of great blog posts and um, resources there. So I know a lot of people who struggle with anxiety and depression, spend a lot of time <laughs> going through all the posts and even just the blog blog posts have really helped them a lot. Mm-hmm. And so those are my resources. Yeah. And I w- if you are, if you're listening to this right now and you're thinking, okay, I'm not sure if I want to share my story with the world. I don't want to jump on a Facebook group. You know, there's probably going to be a lot of reasons and, and things that come to your mind right now that are going to be kind of 
excuses of why you wouldn't want to do this, can I just say to you that just take that one step? Mm-hmm. Just, you know, even if you don't post anything, you know, get into Sarah's Facebook group and just read through some of the things that are being posted. Yeah. Even if really- you're not contributing or you're not ready to contribute. Like she said, I think sometimes it's those incremental steps towards your healing and towards what you want to see your life. And she has provided so many options for you at whatever level you're ready to jump into. So I want to encourage you to connect with her because on the other side of what you're facing right now is hope. And and, and it's something that you will have to work towards, but that's okay, you know? And so I just want to encourage you guys to jump on sarahebal.com. Of course, everything that we talked about today is going to be located in the show notes, so you can grab them, the details here as well. Um, and also you can connect with her on Instagram. Um, what's your Instagram handle, Sarah? <laughs> I don't remember. You, Sarah. You're never on Instagram. I, mean, I don't I know. I never remember. I think it's like, it's either author Sarah Eball or Sarah Eball, but just, just look up my name and you'll find me. <laughs> I will put Sarah. that as well into <laughs> the show notes. Um, Sarah is more on Facebook than she is on Instagram. Whereas yeah. you guys know I am more on Instagram than I am on Facebook. But one other thing, because this is just kind of came into my mind, but people are thinking, okay, is this like, do I need to be religious? Do I need to not be religious? Is this going to be too religious? Like, you know what I mean? (laughs) Well, no, absolutely not. So if you're referring to my book, um, Fearless in 21 Days, I Mm -hmm. think one of the reasons why it's been so successful is it's very practical. Because I was, when I was going through my recovery, one of my prayers was like, don't like, tell me, just tell me what to do. Like, and that's what most people are struggling. Just tell me what to do. So it's broken up into really small tidbits. So 21 days. So there's 21 small chapters. You don't have to read about a bunch of, you know, things. It's like, mm-hmm. get to the point. Cause that's how I learn. And so the first one is how to overcome panic attacks. Okay. How to overcome general anxiety, the importance of rest, the importance of taking care of your body. And so absolutely there go- goes into a little bit more of the spiritual side of things, but whatever that looks like, for you right Mm -hmm. but it's learning to tap into that soul place Mm -hmm. and everyone has a soul place (laughs) Mm -hmm. absolutely yeah absolutely thank you so much i love the fact that you that we met first of all Mm -hmm. number one what you're doing in the world um how you're helping people and you know when i think about brave people you're the top of the list oh and um (laughs) i i really do i feel i feel like you're your friendship and just getting to know you is an absolute gift so thank you thank you and to you as well wow what an amazing conversation it was so good to have sarah on the courage cast today and i just want to thank her for lending her wisdom and her journey and her story to us i want to encourage you to go ahead and connect with her at sarahebal.com as well pick up her book fearless in 21 days a survivor's guide to overcoming anxiety. And next week, we're going to continue this conversation, restoring body, soul, and spirit. And friends, thank you for being here. I love that you join me each and every week. Make sure you connect with me on Instagram and Facebook. And until next time, remember, you have everything you need to live bravely. 
If you like this episode of The Courage Cast, we'd love to hear from you. Leave us a rating and review, and while you're there, hit subscribe so you never miss an episode. Original music and production by Stephen Crilly.